As a preemptive warning, this episode discusses depression and suicide, topics that can be upsetting and disturbing for some listeners. Let's talk about something that not very many people want to talk about. Subjects that, for whatever reason, are still taboo. Depression rates are climbing. According to Gallup, the percentage of American adults who have been diagnosed with depression has reached an all-time high of 29%. And in 2022, the CDC reported 49,449 people died from suicide in the United States. We don't bring up these harrowing statistics lightly. We're bringing them up because our collective silence on these topics only continues to make them worse. There are those out there who want to break the stigmas surrounding suicide and depression. And we want to help get their messages of help and healing to those in need. I'm Amanda DeJong, and you're listening to Now at Ohio State. We talk with researchers, innovators, and bold thinkers who look at our world, see what the real challenges are, and create the solutions that people need now. One such person looking to fight the stigmas and get people the help they need is Dr. Craig Bryan. Dr. Bryan is a board-certified clinical psychologist with expertise in cognitive behavioral treatments for those experiencing suicidal thoughts and PTSD. As a military veteran, he has expertise working with military personnel, veterans, and first responders. He sits down with R. Chris Booker to discuss findings he's come across in his research, the general upward trend of suicide across the decades, and, more positively, the increase of suicide prevention resources. Dr. Bryan, thank you for coming here today to talk about some of the emerging research and trends around suicide prevention. What are some of the things you're seeing now? One of the key trends over the past few decades is a slow and steady rise in the suicide rates across the U.S. as a whole, really since the turn of the century. Now, that that sort of followed, if you look at the decades before that, there was this slow, steady decline. Um, and so there's this reversal of trend. And I think that increase in suicides that we're seeing now is really, I think, kind of prompting a lot of new directions and new ideas on how to more effectively prevent suicides. And I think there's a lot going on, but one of, I I think, maybe the more recent trends is integration of technology into suicide prevention efforts, as well as refinement and improvement of treatments and strategies that have been shown to be effective for preventing suicide. And I would say the, the third and final trend is actually in some respects, maybe a paradigm shift right now where a lot of us on the forefront of suicide research are really questioning a lot of, you know, long-held assumptions about suicide. For many years, and I think it's still a very prevalent mindset now, which is that suicide is caused by mental illness, uh, or another way of kind of saying that is that suicide is a symptom of mental illness. And so 
I would argue, and many others would argue, that an enormous part of our strategy for suicide prevention focuses on things like screening for depression, screening for suicidal ideation, referring people for various mental health treatments. And that makes sense when you, you know, kind of think of if, if you do assume that suicide is caused by mental health problems, well, then that is a very logical way to approach this. But when we look at the data at a national level on suicide, we see that over half of people who die by suicide do not have a mental health condition. And so right out the gate, there's at least two different groups who are dying by suicide. One group has mental health conditions like depression and anxiety. The other group, a slightly larger group, does not. And so if we continue to focus only on strategies that involve screening for mental health conditions, screening for suicidal ideation in healthcare systems, referring people to mental health treatments, we will continue to miss this larger pool of people for whom that does not seem to be a key consideration or a key contributor to their ultimate death. If you would, explain how your research is offering tools, strategies, some of those approaches to promote what you've talked about as organizational-wide transformation towards effective suicide care. Some of the factors that are most distressing or upsetting in our lives, is true for everyone, uh, tend to be everyday annoyances and hassles. And so those things that just frustrate you on a day-to-day basis, when your computers don't work, when the paperwork that you have to do, systems and processes where you, you submit a voucher for reimbursement and gets rejected 10 times, right? And so these are the little things that kind of build up. And it can wear down a person's resilience. And in some respects, from this perspective, how does that influence suicide? It's almost like suicide by, you know, a thousand paper cuts, right? I think it's mistaken. Oftentimes, we think when it comes to like improving and supporting the health and well-being of employees or groups of an organization or group, we say things like, oh, do breathing exercises or go to yoga or, you know, here, here are these like activities that you can do, but we ignore the organizational structures that are still there and they're still wearing people down and frustrating people and burning them out. And so being able to shift our focus to, in essence, in many ways, organizational leaders saying, what are the things that kind of drive our people crazy? Like that just really frustrate them, that wear them down, that drive them nuts on a day-to-day basis. And let's fix those things. Let's get rid of them. Let's make it easier or let's remove those sources of strain from people's lives. And what that does then is it increases well-being. It increases psychological health. And those things are very, very clear, robust, well-supported, protective factors against suicide. And I think the reason why well-being and other you know, just kind of environmental factors play such an important role is because we know from our research that part of the decision that is involved in attempting suicide or ending one's life is this sort of weighing of the options. What are the pros and cons of living? And what are the pros and cons of dying? And if living isn't attractive, if it's not worth it, if it's punishing, if it's aversive, when a person has that momentary crisis, it's not gonna be as appealing to 
plow through, hang on, stick with it. And so all that is to say, what we've really started focusing on with organizations is how can you help make life worth living for the people in your organization? But it's also creating an environment where your employees or your students can feel like they can speak up about some of those issues that are causing them frustration. Is, is that accurate and is that important? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, what you're kind of getting at there is a term that we use psychological safety, right? You have to you have to trust the people that you work with and you have to be able to trust managers or supervisors and leaders to convey when there's a problem, do I feel safe going and saying this is a problem? Um, and do I feel like I'm going to be treated with dignity and respect? Am I going to be listened to? Another kind of related concept then that we see in our research is at those workspaces where people do feel that I'm respected, I am listened to, I contribute, we see lower indicators of suicide risk across the board. And you, you've talked before about setting a goal for an organization of suicide zero. And that would seem like, well, you know, that seems like maybe overly ambitious, particularly in high stress jobs like first responders or nurses or the military. Why is it important to lay that line in the sand? On the one hand, most of us recognize that we probably are not ever going to actually get to zero suicides. Um, there's a brutal reality to that, you know, and so in that sense, it's only an aspirational goal. It's not an actual goal um, or at least an achievable goal. But then the other flip side of that is, well, what other number do you shoot for, right? You know, well, one suicide, two suicides, right? It's I don't know how you can reasonably set a realistic goal other than zero, because if you're aiming for zero, you're going to do the best that you can. You're going to really pay attention to quality of care, uh, to the effectiveness of your strategies and programs. But I think oftentimes the zero suicide mindset gets perhaps misunderstood and applied in an unhelpful way where if we don't achieve zero, then we've automatically failed. And I, I don't think that's a useful way to leverage that particular goal. Part of treatment for people who have experienced suicide ideation or, or have attempted suicide can be sharing the story that led them to that point. And that can be really difficult, but, but why is something like that, sharing that story, sharing that experience important for, uh, for people to verbalize? That strategy that we use in, in our suicide therapy is what we call a narrative assessment. And um, we ask people, yeah, tell me the story of the day you tried to kill yourself or of the, that moment when you were really overwhelmed and really felt very strongly like you wanted to kill yourself. Because of suicide's complexity, I, I really want to understand what's going on with you. Um, because I don't want to make assumptions about why you're suicidal or what's going to maintaining your desire to, to die by suicide, things like that. I really want to understand what's going on in your life, how your emotions, how your thoughts interact with each other. Because if we can sort of reconstruct that timeline and understand what was going through your mind, what you were doing, where you were at, it oftentimes provides a lot of clues about what we should do about it. Now we use that information to say, okay, let's draw the roadmap for what we're going to do together in therapy so that we can hit on 
those things that are going to be most impactful for you. And then we revisit that story multiple times throughout the therapy because we're constantly checking in and saying, we need to customize this for you. Our approach really is kind of sit down and just tell me who you are and what happened, and I'm going to listen to you. And together, we're going to figure this out, and we're going to try to start doing some things that could perhaps in the future, if that sort of storyline starts to unfold again, perhaps you'll be in a better place to respond differently the next time around. Dr. Brian, thank you for sharing this great information. Dr. Brian mentioned that sharing and revisiting their story can help prevent people from attempting suicide again. Our next guest is proof of that finding. Mike Fairman was a U.S. Navy Fleet Marine Force Corpsman for almost 19 years, serving both on active duty and the reserves. In 2010, he was deployed to Afghanistan with the U.S. Marine Corps Infantry. In 2012, Mike attempted to take his own life due to grief, his then-undiagnosed bipolar disorder, and a PTSD medication. Now, Mike is putting out the message of mental health awareness and supporting veterans in need. He sits down with Ard Todd Jones to share his incredibly personal experience, discuss his Summit for Soldiers charitable organization, and talk about what we can all do to help others in need. So, Mike, at age 58, what is it like to be an Ohio State student? To me, everything is, it's about being adventurous and, you know, so to, you know, to be the old guy hanging out with, uh, with these kids and, you know, kind of this new changing environment, it, it's fun, it's interesting. And the anthropologist in me finds it, uh, you know, culturally exciting to kind of look around and, and meet people and uh, it's, it's fun. I think it's fun. Fun's a good word. We like to hear that. Right, right. Well, you're obviously in a much better place than you were in 2012, uh, and that is the reason that we are together here speaking. Can right. you tell us about that year, what went on in your life, and how that led to where you are now? Absolutely. Yeah, it's, um, you know, I got back from Afghanistan, started losing uh, our Marines to uh, recklessness, and then one of my Marines uh, took his life. Um, and I kinda, that, that kind of hit me hard. And it was kind of the the, the straw <laughs> that you know, broke this camel's back and started unpacking a lot of things. For me, it just, you know, there were some incidents, uh, one in particular dealing with a child in Afghanistan that started to unpack, you know, just decades of experience. You know, and people, when you look at post-traumatic stress, it doesn't have to be just one incident. Typically, it's compiled things that uh, kind of finally come to a head. And... So that, losing this Marine and, um, and some other things just kind of took me down this dark cycle. My wife and I were, were living in two different states. She was working in Texas. I was up here in, in Columbus and just uh, in the isolation of a night, you know, in a bottle of whiskey, uh, I tried to take my life. So what happened that night? So that night, um, I reached for my gun and uh, pulled the trigger. It didn't go off. Um, unbeknownst to me, I guess it must have been... Somebody must have unloaded it. I don't know. I don't know what happened. I can't explain. But uh, so I decided, okay, the next best thing is I'm going to go throw myself in front of a speeding vehicle down the road. And uh, But no vehicles came around and ended up stumbling back home. And then uh, that's when uh, my wife had gotten a hold of some people to come check up on me. And uh, yeah, found myself uh, uh, getting a, a three-day stay at the local VA 
kind of made me upset, but it was also the time where I could uh, kind of just reflect. I felt nauseated. I felt, you know, like, how could I do something like this? Ashamed, whatever. But then I realized, as long as I'm mad, <laughs> as long as I'm ashamed, as long as I'm all these things, then I'm going to be motivated to do something about it. And so that was kind of, for me, that was my reset. And so what I realized was, you got to be vulnerable. <laughs> you got to, like, in this tough, you know, facade that we carry, not just in the military, to where we have to have everything in order, I realized what I got to do is strip that away. I've got to be vulnerable enough to say, hey, I'm hurting. I need to get help. So that stay for me did nothing except give me a place that I had to stop and think and reset and come out and decide, you know what, I'm not going to let these issues control me. I'm going to control them. And that's where I decided, you know what, I'm going to get back into climbing. And, uh, and I'm going to go back out there and I'm going to try and let, you know, let people know that, hey, you can reclaim your life. You can get out there and do just about anything that comes your way that you set your mind to. Mike, why do you want to share this story? Because some people, if this happened to them in their life, they would run from it and they wouldn't want anybody to know. There's a stigma around suicide. Why do you want to talk to folks about this? Yeah, because I think uh, stigma is the number one killer. My campaign was for veterans, which was the highest demographic of suicide, second highest demographic are students. And uh, why? Probably because of that isolation. They're not at home. They're away from their friends, most likely, in a new place, a new environment. So uh, why is this important to me? Because it's like fighting the enemy. We know it's going to happen. So we learn everything about that enemy. We learn about their tactics. We expect them to do a certain thing. We don't say, oh, there's an enemy and hide from it. So this is our enemy. We need to understand it. We need to understand, you know, mechanisms of injury. What's what's behind a person that's struggling that could lead to suicide? What are the near misses? You know, my wife is a physician and she's very interested in the near misses because that's where we're going to learn. You know, why did this person not complete this? And that's how we can say, well, so there is a way out there that we can try and reach people. I think it's so massive, you know, that, that it looks like how are we ever going to solve the issue? Well, one person at a time. We all just took the time, one person at a time, to be there for somebody that's struggling. Then, uh, then I think we could compound our success in, in combating this, especially the stigma. Back then, I mentioned, you know, I felt shame. I felt all this stuff. Now I don't, <laughs> you know, because I've learned, no, these are just the issues that I have in my life that I have to struggle with, that I have to sort through. Some of them within my control, some of them not in my control. So there's no shame or guilt in recognizing that I have this thing that I need to get taken care of. And I think the more people that stand up and do that, the more people are going to feel secure enough to come out. So you found something else to pour your energy and passion into, and that was mountain climbing, correct? Yes, I'd, uh, <laughs> I'd climbed for a while, kind of you know, retired from it, did a little guiding once upon a time. Uh, but the opportunity came to hit the big mountains. So most of mine was climbing out west, Mount Rainier's probably my favorite mountain. But uh, opportunity came to go to Mount Everest. And so uh, it has opened up the door to uh, other big mountains on uh, various continents. So my goal is to become the first veteran to climb the seven summits, the highest mountain on each continent, as well as all 50 state high points. So two years after your suicide attempt, you start a nonprofit called Summit for Soldiers. Correct. Tell us about that and how you saw purpose beyond your own self in terms of what this mountain climbing passion could do for others. My buddy that we were 
surfed together. We were climbing buddies. We got together because he was just got back from his second or third deployment. And we just decided, you know what, we need a good climb. So we went back to Rainier on the side of the mountain. And we weren't quite there yet. We were just like, you know, what a great place to have our lives in on the side of a mountain, you know, in this beautiful view. And, and we kind of went from this very somber, melancholy type of moment of just kind of unloading to running down the side of this mountain in probably the most reckless manner. But we, it was, we were alive and we were just like, wow, this is, this is what it's about. And that just rekindled the love of adventure and the outdoors. Before we were an organization, we always had a kind of an open door policy. Anybody who wants to come along and because, you know, mountaineering is not for everybody. But then we realized, you know what, there's, you know, it would just, wouldn't it be great just to kind of as a way of removing the isolation, a way to build that camaraderie and support for one another, you know, kind of put together patrols, if you will, we'll put together groups and take them out on uh, various adventures. And, uh, course nobody wanted to climb mountains but that was okay so we'd load up in in the trucks we'd rent trucks and and drive out to the state high points most of which you can drive or you know hike up very easily but it was more importantly it was just about getting a group of people together in these vehicles just like back in the military except without all the bad stuff having a good time traveling the country getting out and exploring and kind of doing it together but the whole purpose and intention being that camaraderie. So when we come back home, if we're having a bad day, you got somebody's phone you can pick up and call. Tell us about the flag. So this flag started uh, after lost uh, one of my Marines, Lance Corporal Bob Wiley. It was kind of the you know the tough time of my life. And this first set of names were people that we had known um, and their families had lost as well. And just over the years, it's obviously grown with names of people that we've known and lost to suicide. But this, this flag just started as something to carry kind of as a memory, as well as letting them speak to others that, like, this is, this is an issue and this is something that needs to be dealt with. And these military folks here lost their battles at home. But what happened was, was the families of the names on this flag started rallying behind us. And uh, because for once they were able to kind of stand up and see their loved one being honored and being remembered without the taboo of suicide. And it was actually, surprisingly to me, a very healing for them to the point that they would constantly remind me that like, uh, you know, these climbs aren't about, for them, aren't so much about me getting up the mountain as it is carrying their loved one to the top of these mountains. Just so people could realize that, hey, these are these are people that, that had lives, had purpose, had meaning. We can't just forget them because of the manner of death in which they, they, they came about. So, What is your message to people who are in a place where they're thinking about taking their life? My message is I get it. I understand. You know, I may not understand the issue you're struggling with, but I understand that place of just feeling done. You know, stop, take a breath, take a moment. Your decision it's final. <laughs> and uh, you can always make it tomorrow. But today, just stop and look around and say, wait, maybe there is more to live for. Maybe there is something out there. Maybe I don't want to be like this. If it's brought me to that place where I feel like taking my life, well, it stands to reason that you wouldn't want that thing to be there that's driving you to that place. So what do we need to do? Um, and there's no cookie cutter mold. You're going to have to Try different things. You're going to have to keep trying and keep going and put one foot in front of the other until you find that thing that's going to help, whether it's treatment or you know, medication or climbing a mountain or knitting a sweater. It doesn't matter, whatever it is. Mike, you've been very kind with your story, sharing it. I'm very brave, and um, I appreciate you 
we all do appreciate you sharing that with us because I think there's such an important message that you have. Thank you very much for having me here because, I, I, like I said, I do think it's it's important message. The one thing we can all do is just kind of just be there for each other. Just help remove that ice. If somebody is not around or whatever, just reach out, give a call. It's uh, you work something out, and uh, and if you're struggling, like find somebody. Find somebody that you can talk. Find a stranger. It doesn't matter. Just like it's that isolation is going to get you out of that moment where you're just going to spiral out of control. Mike, thank you very much. We really appreciate you thank sharing you. the story. Thank you for having me. Think of the lives we could collectively save, the quality of life we could improve for so many. If only we're more open and honest, not only with those around us, but with ourselves when discussing depression and suicide. As Mike said, to confront the enemy, together. To end this episode, we asked Mike if he would take the time to read the names that are listed on his flag, and he graciously did so. Mike, you brought in a flag that you took to the top of Mount Everest. This has the names of these colleagues who took their own lives. Can you please share with us some of those names? Absolutely. Lance Corporal Robert Wiley, Sergeant Daniel Summers, Staff Sergeant Joshua Allen Berry, Corporal Dane Michael Friedman, Sergeant Chris Pleisk, PFC Amy Dirksen, Specialist Sergio Betts, Specialist Jesse Huff, Commander Job Price, Captain Peter Lindruth, Sergeant James Jones, Sergeant Steve Crane, Corporal Paul Zanuick, Lance Corporal Thomas O'Rourke, Sergeant Kirk Fight, Sergeant Bruce Cogley, Specialist Danny Stahl, Specialist Matthew Stevens, Airman Julie Ann Maloney, and her brother was a student, took his life, Joshua Baker, Major John A. Crone, HM1 Robert Yett, Specialist Rory Jenkins, Major Emerson Rusk, Sergeant Jordan Graham, Sergeant Steve Semwick, Specialist Dave May, Sergeant Jeffrey Williams, Cole Petty, Jeff Bowen, Sergeant Alex Pack, Private David Leap, Sergeant Spencer Levy Hyatt, Specialist Jason Coos, his sister, Private Kristen Coos, PSC Dylan Lethorn, William Holmes, Specialist Joseph Weber, and Specialist Clayton Peacock. If you or someone you know is struggling with mental health, depression, or having suicidal thoughts, please call the 988 Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. They provide 24-7 free and confidential support for people in distress, and they offer prevention and crisis resources. Help is a single phone call away. Simply dial 988. Now at Ohio State is produced by the Ohio State University's Office of Marketing and Communications. For more information, visit us at go.osu.edu slash now. I'm your host, Amanda DeJong. Thanks for listening. <laughs>